Some of the greatest movements of renewal throughout the life of the church were born amid some of the darkest periods. As St. Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So the, historically, this only makes perfect sense. And we see this played out in the lives of countless saints. One of the greatest modern examples of this is one of the greatest mystical doctors of the church who lived in the 16th century of Spain, John of the Cross. And he was formed in the Carmelite order, but he felt a call to reform it because the order had fallen far away from its original charism in spirituality. As St. Teresa of Avila recounts that many of the parlors in these monasteries and friaries had become places where the uh, wealthy and well-connected could gather and mingle. And so there persisted class distinctions even within the monastery, depending on uh, the background of, of the person entering. And so it would become very worldly. And John of the Cross, along with his uh, own companion, Teresa of Avila, sought to reform it. But of course, that always comes at a price, seeking good reform. And John of the Cross suffered greatly for this. Most notably, he was imprisoned by his own community who was resistant to his reforms. He spent eight months in essentially solitary confinement, in a 10 by 6 cell. And it was dark most of the time, and he was brought out to be humiliated before his own community, who was falsely accusing him of disobedience and other things. But it was during this imprisonment, this eight months, that he wrote one of his most profound works, the Spiritual Canticle. And in this work, he relates his own experience of physical darkness, desolation, feeling like God is very, very far away, and relating that to the, to the spiritual life. And rather than running away from God and falling to despair, he entered into that darkness and allowed that to be a time of deep purification for him. And from that time, we've received some of the greatest works of mystical theology in the entire church. John the Baptist, whom we hear about in the gospel today, also experienced something not unlike John of the Cross. He also was imprisoned. He had seen Jesus earlier in his life, proclaimed him, behold the Lamb of God at the beginning of the gospel, but then was imprisoned for proclaiming that truth. And during that imprisonment, he most certainly felt that same sense of darkness and desolation, probably questioning, was that real? Is this all real? Am I doing the right thing? Do I persevere or not? And so Jesus doesn't come to him personally to 
to console him, to reassure him, but rather, what does Jesus do? As we hear in the gospel today, he sends him signs. And Jesus sends the signs of the prophet Isaiah that he has his messengers quote for him. And our first reading from Isaiah 35 is what Jesus quotes to John the Baptist. And in Isaiah 35, this is going back to the seventh century or so before Christ. And during this time, all of Israel, the northern kingdom, had been conquered by the Assyrians, the neighboring nation. And now they were coming south, and they had conquered all of Judah, and they had completely surrounded Jerusalem. So everything was taken over and overrun, uh, except just this remnant of the holy city itself. And so the Judeans living in this time would have felt again that same sense of darkness, of desolation, seeing their whole nation and world kind of crashing in around them and seeing no kind of tangible sign of, of hope. And so this is what the prophet Isaiah comes to proclaim. And he says to the people of Judah, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf cleared, the lame will leap like a stag, the tongue of the mute will speak. And these are the words fulfilled by Jesus himself. And so these signs will mark the arrival, according to Isaiah, of the Savior. And it will mark the inauguration of the end times. The end times being the complete and final restoration of Jerusalem. That is uh, in the context of Isaiah. And so Jesus fulfills these words because as we know in the gospel right away, he wastes no time in healing the sick and performing all of these miracles. In fact, if you study the gospels, it's pretty clear that most of Jesus's public ministry is devoted to healing the sick and performing all of these miracles, these physical, visible signs of God, of the Savior, of the end times. And all of these instances of healing, healing the sick, they're all meant to point to a deeper, interior, spiritual healing. Because that's, of course, ultimately what Jesus comes to do, to not just heal us from our bodily ailments, but to restore our broken relationship with God, that spiritual wound that's in our soul, that's in our human nature since Adam and Eve, that we cannot heal ourselves. But unlike what the Judeans were expecting from Isaiah's prophecy, the end times is not completed within the span of the earthly life of the Savior. So when Jesus comes, he inaugurates the end times, but at Jesus's death, it does not end. That's not the end of the world. It's just beginning. And his presence, of course, continues in the world 
And so that is why we still are living in the end times until Jesus's work is complete and fulfilled. We might say as until heaven is filled. And now Christ remains active in the world through the church and his healing ministry continues in the sacraments. And so most importantly, we have the sacrament of confession, which is that great sacrament of healing our souls of the wounds of our sins, healing the relationship with God that gets broken every time we sin mortally. But that's not all. We also have our body and soul. So God is not only interested in the soul, he's, he's looking out for our bodily well-being as well. And so that the church's healing ministry continues also in the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, that the church gives grace to this moments of suffering and struggling. And through the anointing of the sick, the church uh, offers the grace of healing not only spiritually, but even physically, and gives grace so that the person struggling can unite his or, own, his or her own suffering to Jesus Christ. And that suffering may become sanctifying. But Christ's healing, moreover, is, is not confined to the moment of a sacramental ritual. So we can receive healing from Christ, not just in, in confession and anointing of the sick, but anybody, even a non-baptized person, can invoke the name of Jesus for his healing power and to call upon that power of the Holy Spirit. Any baptized person can pray for an extraordinary physical healing. And those miraculous healings still do happen far often than we often think. But even beyond just the extraordinary healing moments, we should pray for healing as part of our daily prayer. Maybe not extraordinary healings, but all the ways in which our person is broken and prevented from living in a fully free relationship with God. And so our daily prayer should include praying for healing of anything that is an obstacle to that freedom, praying for healing of the wounds in our hearts that arise from the sins of others upon us. We can pray for healing of, of, of those wounds that cause us to embrace false beliefs about ourselves and about God. We can pray for healing of our own disordered passions that cause us to sin. With healing comes freedom. With freedom comes peace and a deeper love of God and neighbor. All of these forms of healing prayer draw their efficacy from the sacraments and should lead us more deeply into the church's sacramental life. And that means to make more regular, more fruitful confessions, to enter more fully into the holy sacrifice of the Mass, to receive greater strength from the Eucharist, to unleash more fruitfully the graces of baptism and confirmation. Every healing 
spiritual or physical, is a sign of the end times, or as we would say theologically, it's an eschatological sign. Because ultimately, we are destined to receive back a glorified body like Christ's, to possess perfect integrity in every aspect of our soul and body. So every moment of healing should bring us one step closer to that final redemption of our bodies. It is for this that we wait each day in joyful hope. That time of imprisonment of John of the Cross and John the Baptist must have felt like an eternity at times, days on end of darkness, desolation, and suffering. In the end, though, it was a short and necessary time of purification. That is our lives on earth, a brief moment in eternity to be purified and sanctified, healed and restored, transformed and deified. A brief moment in eternity to be prepared to meet the Savior face to face when he comes. Thanks for listening to Within the Walls of St. Paul's Sunday Homilies. Please be sure to like us on Facebook and consider supporting us by visiting stpaulsharvardsquare.org. That's stpaulsharvardsquare.org. God bless and see you next time.